1: Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, we're back for another year. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, joining me from the much less temperate South, we have uh, David Grubbs, who's a assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Grubbs? Hello, hello. Also with us, uh, Nathan Gilmore, who is an associate professor of English at uh, Manual College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Did I get all that right?
2: You did, and I'll just go ahead and uh, preempt the we start too early jokes. Uh, we are, in fact, wrapping up week three of classes right now.
1: <laughs> week four by the time this goes up. Uh, what happened over the, on the network over the summer, guys? We haven't had an episode since... I think, uh, August 1978.
2: (laughs) Yeah, something like that, Michael. Uh, You hadn't been born yet, and... (laughs) Me, barely. I'm trying to think. I mean, uh, we've had a couple of Profiles episodes, I believe. Uh, David, you interviewed, uh... Oh, and I've already forgotten the author's name. So, David, talk about your Profiles.
0: Sure, uh, I interviewed uh, an author named Derek Olson uh, I've interviewed him on Profiles before And uh, it's a, a treatment of Cassiodorus's On the Interpretation of the Psalms Which is just a really cool uh, Really cool exploration of what the Psalms meant In uh, the late classical and early medieval world And the influence of this book that... Um, I and probably most people had never heard of on, uh, well, just all sorts of things. It's a, it's it's a really good book. I enjoyed the, I enjoyed that book and enjoyed the conversation.
2: Very good. I think. Uh, I mean, every other
1: show has been uh, every other show has been active this summer except for us.
2: It's true. It's true. Yes, indeed.
1: Well, oh. we're back though, and uh, today we're going to be talking about a relatively obscure poem. From the, uh, from the Mexican poet uh, Octavio Paz. And the, the poem is called San Ildefonso Nocturne, and hopefully people will be able to find it somewhere, uh, if not online, then in their local library. Octavio Paz is a giant of uh, Mexican literature, but like a lot of modern poets, he's not terribly well-known outside of literary circles, and I suspect most of our listeners have not read him. So, Nathan, who was he, and why did he win the Nobel Prize in 1990?
2: Well, I'll try to hit the high points of his biography. I won't try to do an exhaustive one. Uh, born in the early 20th century, uh, he, as a young man, uh, did travel to Spain and fought on the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War. So he was part of that uh, early to mid-20th century leftist scene. In fact, he remained a communist through a fair bit of the 20th century. He spent some time in Mexico's uh, diplomatic corps. He was uh, an, At- an At- attaché, pardon me, to France, uh, and also spent a number of years as the diplomat to India. And during all of these years, he was publishing collections of poetry, he was publishing essays, uh, you know, in the sort of grand tradition of uh, Chaucer and Dante and Milton, he was a diplomat poet. uh, And, you know, in 1990, to answer that part of the question, he won that Nobel Prize My sense is largely on the strength of his career uh, as a poet. Uh, Almost every volume of poetry uh, he had published, uh, including Vuelta, which I believe is the collection that contains uh, 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 the poem we're talking about, um, (laughs) Golly, uh, was published before 1990. So, I mean, the Nobel seems to be a recognition of a, a career as a poet uh, more than a response to any particular volume so michael uh, other than my inability to pronounce the name of this poem uh is there anything else to be said about uh his biography his career as a poet
1: yeah i, I think it might it might behoove us to read the nobel's description of why they gave it to him and, and their quote is for impassioned writing with wide horizons characterized by sensuous intelligence and humanistic integrity now, I'm not sure those words really mean all that much. It sounds like it could describe almost every Nobel laureate, but uh, that's, what, that's what they said. Had either of you read him before this?
0: Mm-mm, no, I hadn't.
2: I had not. I, I think I had read excerpts of his before, but I mean, I'd never spent any significant time on him.
1: I think his big book is The Labyrinth of Solitude, which I have, but I have it in Spanish, and my Spanish is not good enough to read it, so that's where I am.
0: Speaking of that, Michael, could you say something about uh the translation that we're that we're reading? I'm uh, just just wanting to make it clear that uh I certainly don't have the chops to read Octavio Paz in the language he actually adorned
1: right, and that is a problem if if anybody reads in another language and has ever tried to translate poetry or looked at a translation of a poem across the page from its original, you, you'll know that translations of poetry are notoriously sketchy, so uh, I'm I'm sure this poem is even better in Spanish than it is in English. The translator I have is Elliot Weinberger and I got it from an anthology I used to teach with called Global Voices Contemporary Literature from the Non-Western World by uh, Arthur W. Biddle, B-I-D-D-L-E. I don't know anything about Mr. Weinberger. Presumably he speaks Spanish.
2: Presumably. (laughs) One can hope.
1: Uh, I think San Ildefonso Nocturne makes it pretty clear that T.S. Eliot was a big influence on Paz, but I also think it'd be pretty clearly wrong to think of him as some sort of lesser Eliot. So, David, tell me where you see T.S. Eliot in this poem, and then talk about how this poem moves beyond its Eliotian influences.
0: In the bit of biography I was able to dip into uh in preparation for this it did mention that when he was uh, a much younger poet that he had encountered a spanish translation of elliot's wasteland and had just been blown away so there is a there is there is a an actual biographical um moment where he encounters elliot there's you know it's not an accident if you see it in here um but I think even if I hadn't known that, and even if you hadn't asked this question of me, I think I still would have noticed it. Uh, the concern with time, which is pervasive throughout the poem, uh, and the concern with language, uh, both of those are the main problems of uh, Eliot's Four Quartets. And a lot of the meditations on those things are are similar as well, in, in ways that I think will probably take up later on Uh, but another similarity to to the four quartets that i see in this uh, is the attention to the particularities of a location and the ways that it evokes its past uh, uh, the ways that it uh, the, the experience of being in it um, attention to light, attention to architectural details, things like that, which remind me very much of uh, the importance of place in Four Quartets. Uh, it's also an urban space. It's a city space, uh, which makes me think a bit of Prufrock, um, who, uh, whose night cityscape is, is so important to, uh, to that poem.
1: Um. And it's got that, it's got a very, uh, it's got a very Prufrockian line here in Canto too. In the desolation, the street, sli- street lights invent unre- unreal pools of yellowish light that seems very uh, proofrock. He's got the yellow smoke curling around, what have you.
0: Yeah, well, and that, that, that fog that curls up like a cat... Um, in Elliot's poem could be friends with the ghost of the dog that searches the garbage for a spectral bone in, uh, <laughs> in Paz's poem. So uh, s- some, some, some similarity there. Uh, one that stood out to me a lot is, is towards the end of the poem, uh, a, a passage. And I, I, you would have to, I think, see it in, I would have to, I would want to see it in Spanish and then see Spanish translations of Eliot before, uh, before I called this a smoking gun. But this uh, few lines between seeing and making contemplation or action, I chose the act of words, and that reminds me so much of the Hollow Men. Um, you know, between uh, what between the contemplation and the act, uh, I can't I can't remember all of the. But you know, there's that, that run in the hollow men between the this and the that, between the this and the that, between the this and the that falls the shadow. Um But again, I would I would have to see what Spanish is Weinberger translating and how had Eliot himself been rendered into Spanish before I before I saw that as more of an accidental echo.
1: Yeah, I would love to talk to someone who speaks Spanish to see what we're missing in reading this. In a translation, because it, it, I almost feel like when you read a poem in translation, what you need is about 10 translations that you can read all at once.
0: Right, yeah.
1: That seems pretty Eliotian. Anything to add to that, Nathan?
2: No, I mean, those are the passages that I was uh, certainly going to point to. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the between the seeing and the making is the one that immediately jumped out to my ear. Good, good. Uh, you know, as an echo. I mean, you know, that idea that uh, poetry itself, which we're going to be talking about uh, more and more as this episode rolls on, uh, is itself, you know, something that is neither entirely passive nor entirely active, but a a between thing. Uh, and, you, you know, like you said, I mean, that's, that's something that definitely, uh, if it's not, you know, a direct uh, pull from a Spanish translation of Eliot, at the very least, conceptually, uh, that same thing is going on in The Hollow Men.
1: You think Eliot would have sued him if he just dropped it in there without citation?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, when when is this poem being written, Michael?
1: Early 70s.
0: Okay, so...
1: uh... I was just making a joke about how Elliot drops in unsighted lines from other people's poetry.
0: That's uh, all. See, I was actually trying to figure out whether or not Elliot would be bothered if he would like even be alive
1: if he would be bothered he would be a total hypocrite is what i'm saying the other one <laughs> that, that felt Eliotian to me is at the beginning of canto 4 ideas scatter the ghosts remain that that feels very much like the heap of broken images at the end of the wasteland oh, this yeah. notion this notion that the things that once sustained us can only sustain us in fragmented form now and you know you don't get rid of them maybe they could still do something for us but they can't do what they used to do and, uh, and there's something tragically beautiful about that, I think, in that poem and this one.
0: I would need to know Elliot's whole work more, but the, the, the sensuality, the body imagery in the last bit of this poem seems to go into a place that I, I personally don't associate with Elliot.
1: Agreed, Elliot's yeah. Voice. I think that's that's a major place where he moves beyond him is Elliot has a revulsion of the physical body is probably too much, but he certainly seems uncomfortable talking about it. Um, if oh, you think I mean, about,
2: what what about the uh, I mean, I don't know, I think of Prufrock as having I mean perhaps a horror, yes, but it's a horror born of a fascination with the sensuality of women's bodies.
1: Oh, I think he's disgusted by them. He, he He's looking at that woman's beautiful arm, and then he sees the light brown hair on it, and it turns his stomach. Or you think, is it the second canto of The Wasteland where the two Cockney women are in the bar, and they're talking about their abortions?
2: Yeah, yeah, I know the passage. Yeah.
1: I, I, I don't think of Eliot as, as a bodily poet. And I I I definitely agree that that is something Paz does and does very well. It's 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 very sensual without feeling exploitative or um, overly sexual. It just feels it, it feels real in that sense. It it grounds yeah. these these broken images in something corporeal, and I think that's an important move he makes that Elliot never does, as far as I can tell.
0: Well, it's Paz taking taking a move towards the the sensuality of a metaphysical poet like Dunn and what Dunn does with body. And Eliot, even as though he admires his metaphysicals so much, um, that's not a move that he makes. But I think pause can go
1: there. Yeah, I agree. Well, um, we've already talked about this a little bit, but there's a major strand of 20th century poetry, and I think the Four Quartets is clearly part of it, but it doesn't end with the four quartets, uh, that takes as its subject the power or the impotence of poetry itself. Nathan, am I right in thinking that San Ildefonso Nocturne belongs to that strand of poetry?
2: Yeah, I think early on in that first stanza, I mean, the the focus on the, you know, the glowing alphabets of the street signs, you know, starts to establish that as an image. And then by the time you get into stanza two, uh, his memories of the revolution are sort of intertwined Uh, With his memories of, you know, these notions that, you know, Dostoevsky and Stendhal have this kind of power uh, that's going to change the world. And, you know, this is a look back on it, if you will, uh, as, you know, an older man realizing that something other than, you know, the the power that was promised is going on there. Uh, You know, when he is remembering those days, I mean, you know, the poet is almost a Hephaestus character. Uh, in, in stanza two, the line that jumps out at me there with Alyosha K and Julian S, we devised bolts of lightning against the century and its clicks. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not the idea that the poet is legislator, you know, uh, in an English romantic sense. Uh, but it's certainly that, you know, the poets will devise the weapons, uh, that will fight this war. And then we get, you know, later on, uh, these meditations on truth in the third stanza, Uh, And poetry is definitely not truth, uh, but history is also not truth, you know, uh, echoes there perhaps of Sidney and Aristotle, Uh, but, you know, that's where we get those uh, passages about the between character of poetry. So, you know, as a a participant in that tradition, you know, in the 20th century of meditating on what has become of poetry, uh, whether poetry has any place, uh, we certainly have some, some familiarity going on. You know, as far as, you know, what pause adds to it, um, I think, you know, analogous to the focus on the body that we just talked about, we get a focus on the particular here that we don't get in an Eliot or an Auden. I mean, you know, this is poets who are involved in the Spanish Civil War, in the international communist movement. This is, uh, you know, a sort of regret, uh, not that grows out of, you know, a vague sense that we were idealists when we were young. Uh, but rather that, you know, our our beginnings as poets and, you know, what we've come to be as poets, uh, you know, has a, a real strong connection to, you know, real concrete historical moments. And, you know, the, the particular passages that deal with that I don't want to hit right now because we've got plans to discuss them later. Uh, but, you know, poetry's status as between these two kinds of truth, each of which is inadequate in itself. I mean, is really, you know, the contour, if you will, of the meditation on poetry here. Um, one little passage, um, I want see, I've just gotten my pages out of order here. Well, I'll just leave it there. I mean, you know, David, I mean, are there other passages on poetry, uh, that, you know, you would want to highlight for our listeners? The, uh,
0: finding it real quick because i was about i was about to ask a question actually i'll go ahead and ask my question while i'm looking for this other thing i wanted to point out um the reference to Alyosha k and julian s i think i got the Alyosha k but i don't know who the julian s is am i gonna be feel stupid when i know
1: it's stendhal but i don't remember what book
2: red and black i had to look that up because i've not read that book okay
0: okay and the other is brother brothers brothers K, right?
2: Uh, brothers yes. Karamazov, yeah. Brothers K is a baseball okay. novel. Oh,
0: <laughs> I haven't read that one. Okay. Okay, so brothers Karamazov. Okay, all right. So I felt like I got half of it, and then I was like, I don't get the other one. Um, the reference that I was thinking of is is when he starts talking about poetry in a kind of in a kind of inspiration uh the uh the the, the idea that he, he is uh he is it's as if he's has some something else is writing through him do y'all remember those lines i should have i should have underlined them yes yeah, it's seem...
2: in a stanza three like tell me if this is the passage you're thinking of um mm-hmm. between seeing and making contemplation or action i chose the act of words to make them, to inhabit them, to give eyes to the language. Poetry is not truth, it is the resurrection of presences. History transfigured in the truth of undated time.
0: Yeah, I, I love... Um, I love those. Uh, the, oh, that, those, aren't, those aren't exactly the lines I was looking for, though. Okay, I found that it's in the first stanza... Uh, someone has planted a forest of magnetic needle needles in my eyelids. Someone guides the thread of these words. The the page has become an ant's nest. But he, it, it's it, it seems as if uh, he he feels like the the magnetic needles needles in his eyelid. Like so, the reference to the compass. Like s- something is pulling his his vision, his poetic vision uh, in, in a direction, the way a compass needle is moved. Um, but, but it's, but it's also the punning on the needles because they're magnetic needles, which also in the next line, there's the guiding of a thread. Someone guides the thread of these words, but it seems not to be him. Um, it's almost as if he sees the poetry as Coming from him, coming through him, but not entirely of him. And so potentially an, an instrument of this kind of ephemeral time that he seems to be using poetry to try to connect to.
1: When he says that poetry is the revival of a presence or whatever, Nathan just read it. Um, and it, it, it seems like what you're talking about is he has this unknown presence that's guiding him toward it. And the poetry is the vehicle
0: yeah uh, and there being some kind of natural but inexplicable connection between them. I love that image of the of the magnetic needle, right there's some There's something in the reality that is pulling the poetry in a direction. Um, I, I i I like that I like that image.
1: Well, the plot of the poem, if you can call it that, is that Paz is looking out at the San Ildefonso building in Mexico City. And as he looks at it, the time gets out of joint and he starts seeing images from earlier centuries. So time has obviously got a lot to do with this poem. David, how would you characterize Paz's attitude toward the past, tradition, all that stuff that falls under the vague heading of time?
0: there's uh, a concern with it from the very beginning, uh, the, the poem starts at night at a particular, at a particular time, but is in my window night invents another night. Um, so we're, we are in this moment of time, but then immediately distanced or, or transposed into another one. Uh Those first lines are very difficult to me. At first I thought he was talking about fireworks, (laughs) but then it seemed he was talking about street signs with with letters. Um, Maybe it's both. Not really really sure. But uh, the poetry drills through time, and in fact uh, these phrases drill through time, and perhaps I am that which waits at the end of the tunnel. As if uh, the poem in relationship to to time is is a kind of self seeking. What you know, he finds himself at the other end of the process. the uh, The scenes that keep showing up. You talked you talked about the images of earlier centuries. Um, I looked at some uh, some images of this building uh, in Mexico City and at some of the uh, some of the, the murals that are on it. Uh, it makes sense to me that someone outside the structure looking at it would have evoked in their imagination the kinds of images that are also inside. So um, that, that artistic representation of time on a building that is that, that has itself stood through all of these moments. Time is a kind of ultimate reality in this poem but uh the problem the problem is that one of the things humans do with time is they make history of it uh he talks as, as when he's talking about kind of the 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 political uh the political bent of his earlier idealistic days uh he he launches from that into some statements about history um are they the histories in error and this is in the third stanza. Are they the histories an error? History is the error. Beyond dates, before names, truth is that which history scorns. The everyday, everyone's anonymous heartbeat, the unique beat of everyone, the unrepeatable everyday, identical to all days. Truth is the base of a time without history. So time and history are not synonymous. Time, uh, Time is real. Um, but it's much more about a kind of ephemeral, visceral moment, which everyone's heartbeat. Like, you don't get much more, much more bottled body and time than heartbeats. Um, but, uh, the idea that history is an, is an error and not wanting to spoil things too much, um because we're, we're, we're just about to get into th- some of this, too. The idea that the history... History is humans' attempt to uh, collate all of these moments and fashion them into a coherent narrative um, with satisfying explanations. Uh, that, that seems to be... Uh, I, I would say that it's it's that kind of error that he's that he's uh, looking at. Um, that that attempt to piece together this history into something that's manageable. Um, the present instead is the factor of time that uh, is important in this moment uh, or in in this particular poem. The, uh, the, the real, immediate, sensible value value of the present. Not good, so much the present,
1: right? Case. Not so much the present is undated time. That's the term he uses mm-hmm. to call it. To call it the present is to position it in history. But but what matters is what is he the unrepeatable, every day identical to all yeah. days, which is not really the yep. present, but it's also not not the present. I don't know. His attitude toward time <laughs> here is time here is very complex.
0: Uh. Bit, a few lines down from that sun's words stones burn and burn out the moment burns them without burning hidden unmoving untouchable the present not its presences is always
1: Hmm. yeah
0: so it is it's not the present in the, in the place in as that thing that is poised between future and past is the, I mean, that, that would be the way that I would read it, but it's something about the, the immediacy of it, not where is it in a sequence of moments.
1: What do you if think that, about that line, that the moment burns them without burning? Isn't that, um, do you think that's a burning bush thing?
2: Oh, I think it's but gotta it's the, be.
1: It's the opposite of the burning bush, right? Because the bush burns but doesn't burn anything else. The moment burns everything else without itself burning.
0: Oh, I thought it was uh, the moment burns them without burning them. But I, the I, moment I, burns sure. them
1: without burning. Like the moment, the moment is yeah. not on, on fire, but it burns everything else. It's like a very hot stove, I guess. Or is it
2: that the the moment burns them without actually burning them? So, in one sense, it's burning them, but in, o- in another sense, it's not.
1: We really need someone to read this in Spanish and tell us. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm wondering I've... about all this presence and present and presences. I wonder, I, I don't know enough Spanish to know if that all holds. And I mean, it's my fault for assigning something in another language.
0: Well, I love that, uh, the evocativeness of the burning bush imagery, though. Um, I think that, that that might help to get at this, uh, that idea that, you know, here is a bush and it is on fire, but that fire the the that fire is not constituted of those linear physical cause and effect processes that fire is that we normally think of that it's it's a different kind of like it's it's the fire of a of a presence that is not actually bound within those processes um i i can't I guess we need poets like Paws to say that kind of thing, because I'm I'm having a hard time saying it. <laughs> but time is important in this poem. He has things that he wants to say about it, but they're so... They are ephemeral. Um, this is where he gets his most... Elliot-ish to me. Um, I think he may be saying some different things about time than Elliot did, but... I I think I, I didn't have time to go back and read the four quartets alongside of this. Um, that I think might actually be a really interesting, uh, a really interesting close kind of comparison to do, but I haven't done it.
2: And another section, David, I mean that that really explores time, um, is when he he sort of goes on his tour of, you know, the different. I'll, I'll call them religious visions of Mexico City, right? I mean, when he talks about the the city of canals that was filled with idols and then the Criollos erected another city, not white, but red and gold, right? Uh, and that, you know, its imagination is open to the invisible heaven and hell. And then later on, you know, uh, it is conquered not by the weight of the years, but by the infamy of the present, right? So, you know, again, uh, I, I also, I, I have to, repent of uh the sin of sloth here david i didn't find a a spanish language version of this so i could do the back and forth comparison but i wonder whether that infamy of the present is finding its echoes in those you know the the presences and present that you were just talking about
0: yeah yeah but again dear listeners uh i, I I and uh I, I I reckon you you gentlemen too, um feel as if we're poking around on a surface that we can't always get purchase on
1: yeah i'm uh I'm intrigued by this poem without claiming to understand it in any meaningful way.
2: That's often how I feel about Elliot too so I don't feel so bad <laughs> yeah
1: uh the San Ildefonso building began its life as a Jesuit boarding school, and then in the 19th century it became a national school. In the 20s, its exterior was painted with murals relating episodes from Mexican history and culture. David referred to those earlier. And then since 1992, which of course is after the time when this poem was written, it's been a museum and cultural center. It's got to be significant that this is the building that prompts, pauses, reflections. But why? What is it about the San Ildefonso building?
2: when we talk about that move, uh, you know, from the the mission, right, I mean, to something that is more identified with national identity, I think that that is one of the moves that, you know, this poem locates as coming before uh, the poetic voice's own time, but still has significance. So, I mean, you know, the, the move that I, I referred to just a moment ago from the, the, the city of idols, or the city over idols, pardon me, uh, to the mission, the sense that I get there is that, I mean, you know, that is a, a radical change. That is something that, you know, just completely reshapes what the city is. And it seems like, you know, San Ildefonso, it, why can I not say this? San Ildefonso, there we go, uh, you know, kind of takes its beginning, uh, from that universe. But then in the course of the poet's own lifetime. Uh, as it becomes, you know, more of a a center of national identity rather than of missional identity. Uh, The sense that I get is that, you know, they're in in stanza two. um, I'm trying to find the phrase now. uh, But he talks about it as a, here it is, churches dome growth, their facades petrified gardens of symbols. Uh, And the idea that the identity of Mexico uh as you know instantiated here uh with this building uh is one in which you know the the modern identity sort of grows over this fossilized form that was there before and remains uh a present to go back to a presence pardon me to go back to that word um uh, but it is the i guess the the relationship between the new growth and the old fossil Uh, that gives it its shape. Uh, And, you know, to to go back to, you know, that that idea that, you know, it's an older man reflecting back on, uh, you know, the poetic idealism and the political idealism of an earlier year, the last few lines of stanza two, we disperse, not there in the plaza with its dead trains, but here on this page, petrified letters. Uh, So in some sense, you know, this building... Uh, is a a fossilized reminder uh, of an earlier sense of mission that's given way to another sense of mission that the poet realizes was part of his own lived experience, but itself likely is destined to become yet another fossil. So uh, again, I mean, I I think it ties in pretty nicely with our earlier conversation about truth. Uh, The poet is realizing that uh, not only his own Words and his own deeds, but even his own ideals uh, are part of this becoming that is, uh, you know, transforming this city at every moment that you can remember. Even as you know the the, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go you know Heideggerian here for a second, but the structure of presence and presentation remains something that you know shoots through all of these changes. So it is at the same time a building that has changed radically and yet it is part of a structure uh, that allows us to keep talking about those changes as changes of a a constant, if you will. Um, And at this point I'm confusing myself. So uh, Michael, is there anything else to say about this?
1: Yeah, I I think the murals on the outside are interesting too because the building simultaneously is part of Mexican history and enacts it. Or maybe not an accent. Or it demonstrates it. it. Yeah. yeah, presents it on the on the wall. So it's simultaneously lived and presented. Right. He doesn't, as far as I remember, mention the murals directly, but they were there.
2: Oh sure, sure. Well, and I mean, I, and and yeah. I'm realizing now to go back to our, you know, I should have looked at the Spanish text that we're now working with. You know, uh, ambiguities in, uh, you know, homonymous uses uses of present presence present so on and so forth i wonder uh if we are imposing that because it's the english homonym or whether it also you know translates if you will
1: it translates into french so so presence present presence and present as the as the verb are i'm pretty sure the same in french so i think there's a good chance they are in spanish as well
2: okay fair enough david i cut you off there i'm sorry what were you going to say yeah,
0: I, I think there's a direct reference to it. Um, I, if you, if you look at uh, at images of it, the the ex the exterior is painted with murals, but it's not the street exterior. the The building itself um, is kind of built around a square. If I'm if I'm looking at images of the right place, um, red brick with uh, I guess. Uh, whether 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 it's marble or concrete trim, I can't tell. And that edifice, largely intact, is is the exterior border. But inside, there's there's uh, like a cloister garden with multi with uh, three tiers of pillared galleries leading around this central space. And it's on the walls of those galleries that these murals uh, that these murals are painted. So in the uh in the second stanza, we walk through galleries of echoes, past broken images, our history. Mm-hmm. Is a very that's a very straight description of what this space looks like. Um it's uh it's it's really, really interesting. And the style of them is very uh very nineteen twenties modern, um, remi- it, you know, it, it reminds me a bit of Picasso, um, though a little a little more realistic than Picasso. Um, there's uh, uh, one image that I, I, I didn't see captioned, but it's uh, a more fair-skinned man and a darker skinned woman sitting next to each other holding one another, and lying on the ground before them is what looks like a, a dead, brown-skinned boy. Um, there's no caption, but I know what it is. It's Adam and Eve looking at dead Abel. Except Adam is criollo, uh, is, is Spanish, and Eve is a, a, a native Mexican and they're looking at their fallen child. Um, this kind of national history, laid over biblical history in these murals, uh, it, they're, they're really, really interesting to look at in the ways that th- that art itself is kind of fusing some of those images in itself. And then you have a poem <laughs> pointing at that.
1: Well, hell, David, I want you to take me on a tour of Mexico City.
0: Um, well, I'm just, I, all I have is Google Images.
1: Like a lot of uh, Latin American intellectuals and artists, Paz was a Marxist for a period. And in fact, he subscribed to Marxism at least through the end of the 1960s. In 1974, though, he read Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago, and he renounced Marxist ideology for good. San El Nocturne is interesting because it was written sometime between 1969 and 1975. So I'm not sure if he'd already read Solzhenitsyn. But sections of this poem, particularly the third canto, I believe, um, seem pretty uneasy with Marxist practice, if not doctrine. Uh, David, would you say that the poem sheds any kind of light on Latin American Marxism?
0: In, this, in, in the sense that uh, I, I think it gives us a, a glimpse into the, the internal feeling of one who was very strongly, uh, idealistically aligned with it earlier in his life. And in fact, um, seems to have devoted his art to the, to pursue the pursuit of this ideal, but then seeing it, um, seeing that ideal, uh, both achieved and not achieved in a kind of way that, um, makes him distance himself from it. I I don't know a lot about this particular era, um, he is born, um, as I, uh, just looking at the dates, um, right in the middle, uh, he's, he's born in the Mexican revolution, um, and the establishment of a stable revolutionary government after, you know, 1910 through 19, in the twenties, um, and then in the thirties and forties, um, things are kind of stabilizing into a national, into a national government. Um, that's that's you know supposed to be achieving the things that the revolution sought. Um, he seems to describe that experience uh, when he taught. He talks about the they devised bolts of lightning against the century and its clicks. The the kind of uh, well, you know, the the forging of thunderbolts, you know, they are Hephaestus, um, but also uh, it almost has has kind of a Promethean sense, as if we're going to steer steal the fire of heaven and throw it back up at it. Um, that that kind of revolutionary, uh, that re- revolutionary zeal. Um, the the arrogance, though, of it? Good, we wanted good to set the world right. We didn't lack integri- integrity, we lacked humility. What we wanted was not innocently wanted. Right? So he, he looks back at his former idealistic self and said, uh, I I sympathize with my idealism, I do not sympathize with my arrogance. Um, the precepts, and concepts the arrogance of theologians to beat with a cross, to constitute, to institute with blood, to build the house with bricks of crime, to declare obligatory communion. Um, He launches into all of this church language, but he's describing political revolutionaries um, who, uh, if I remember rightly, uh, saw the church as an instrument of, uh, of oppression. Um, there there was uh, not a very settled relationship between the Catholic Church in Mexico um, and, and the Revolution um, to the point where, if I remember rightly, in the 30s it was suppressed.
1: This is the um, 20s? It's the plot of um, The Power and the Glory. Maybe it's yeah. the 30s. It's sometime around then.
0: Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, uh, not I, I wish this was history that I had more at my fingertips because it's incredibly interesting. I just haven't had the had the opportunity to pursue it as I should. Um, But the way that he speaks of these revolutionaries who would see themselves as against the abuses of church and the dogma and the compulsion of men's minds and all of those kinds of things, and he looks at him. He looks at his, his. his revolutionary past and says we 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 were that we did that um we were a different revolution or we were a different religion uh with its own inquisition and that's even you know that's that's the language the kind of language that he uses is of inquisition and then rage became philosophy its uh drivel had covered the planet reason came down to earth the form of a gallows it's a it's a kind of parody incarnation all they wanted was what was reasonable what was rational what what made you know good empirical sense and when it was made flesh it took the form of a gallows um, and there we slide from Inquisition into French Revolution Reign of Terror uh, We have all been in the grand theater of filth, judge, executioner, victim, witness. We have all given false testimony against the others and against ourselves. And most vile, we were the public that applauded or yawned in its seats. So even the the complicity of those who were not directly involved, but either passively or... uh, Passively supported or simply ignored What was going on in that revolution And each year was a mountain of bones And that's It is after that that he declares History in error And that's 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 a comment on the revolutionary uh, The revolutionary philosophy as well Which saw history as having a very clear Plot flow and that the revolution was the next thing, and the inevitable thing. And now he declares the history an error. What am I missing? Because I don't know this this history as well as I ought to.
2: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get to the, the particulars of, you know, Mexican history, but I think that this, when we blend it into our earlier discussions of, you know, time and history, I mean, it really is... Um, The, uh, you know, truth is that which history scorns definitely has that earlier connotation we were talking about uh, when we were talking about, you know, the difference between the, uh, what is it, the undated present uh, and then the, or no, 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 the the transfigured in the truth of undated time, that's the phrase. That certainly has a sort of metaphysical character to it, but then when you blend it with this history of the revolution, uh, I mean, it takes on another register of meaning right truth is that which history scorns the everyday everyone's anonymous heartbeat you know his earlier revolutionary idealism would have regarded you know the individual heartbeat as you know just simple collateral damage the cost of history it can't Uh, be part
1: of the grand narrative that Mm -hmm. marxism tells about the world the individual heartbeat because it's anonymous doesn't matter
2: Exactly, exactly. And then we get you know, again that that blending that I find so fascinating in stanzas two or cantos two and three, between the religious and the political, right? Um, you know, there uh, in that passage that, that David was commenting on, we also get this this chilling line. Some became secretaries to the secretary, to the general secretary of the Inferno. So we've got communism and Dante and, you know, uh, complicity and just all sorts of things rolled into one. I mean, I think that, you know, this first part of the third canto, I mean, might've been for me the most powerful part because, uh, you know, like David so rightly said there, part of what the revolution was trying to do was to remove the sloppiness and the irrationality of the old way, uh, so that we could institute, uh, you know, by, you know, to institute with blood, and with bricks of crime, a new reasoned uh, and, you know, historical mode of existence. And, you know, what happens in this third stanza is it just gets rolled back into itself uh, so that, you know, we don't get rid of the notion of the Inferno, but we end up serving the Inferno. A bureaucratic Inferno.
1: Is there any other kind?
2: Well, and, I mean, you know, in the, again, I mean, I, I just the third stanza, like I said, Michael, I mean, it's, it's just the part that just haunts me. It stays with me. Uh, you know, when he talks about the, again, you know, the flurry of this revolution, conversions, retractions, excommunications, reconciliations, apostasies, recantations, the zigzag of demonolatries and the androlatries, bewitchments and aberrations, my history. Uh, so, you know, I mean, th- th- this isn't simply history in the sense of things that happened uh and have already happened but it is again you know all of this even though history is supposed to remove this great uh irrationality it ends up being itself just this storm of irrationality on its own terms
1: it reminds me a bit of uh, cheslaw maywash's poem child of europe which is this very sarcastic description of how to survive in a in a totalitarian state essentially but what is remarkable to me about the pause poem is how personal it is how he is indicted not we I mean we is part of it but it comes down to him this is his history
2: right and this is why he does poetry yeah. because these presences that he was so willing to kill need resurrecting now mm. that's good
1: After about 300 lines of very dense poetic reflection on time, history, poetry, language, Paz ends the poem with a description of his sleeping wife. Nathan, what's he getting at there?
2: Well, I think it is a turn towards something like personalism. Uh, It's a callback to that idea of, you know, the founding of, of Mexico City by the Criollos and the idea that underneath, you know, the very structured and the very mathematical gateway that is the cathedral that points to heaven and hell that there is something underneath that you know is prior to the concept so i mean the 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 human body here uh almost becomes a sort of analog to the you know mythical body of quetzalcoatl in the old aztec myths upon which you know the city of tenochtitlan is founded right um how long did you have
1: to practice those words nathan
2: Funny thing is, Michael, I say those without any trouble at all. But if I have to say San Ildefonso, it takes me about eight tries before I can do it. So I, you know, (laughs) uh, let the psychologist analyze. I'm sure it'd be a lot of fun. But at any rate, I think that the, like I said, the, the bodilyness of the end of this poem is a call back to, you know, the pre Tenochtitlan valley Uh, back in stanza two. And then it's also a a callback, I think, to, you know, the resurrection of presence. Uh, And again, you know, I I think one of the great tensions in this poem uh, is between the presence, which is something that is undated. It's not part of that grand narrative. It is particular. uh, And then the history, which is regimented and dated, and it has a grand purpose, and it has collateral damage and all that. So, You know, in some ways, I think that, uh, you know, his attending to the form of his sleeping wife does not absolve him from, you know, the, the revolutionary ideology that he describes, but I think he does see it as, you know, what has come to be when that revolutionary ideology was no longer something that he could hold on to himself, um... I'm sure there's more going on here. I mean, David, what else is going on with the ending of this poem? Well, in
0: the revolutionary ideology, the reality is re is what is, what is reasonable and what is, uh, uh, by, by extension, what, what is ultimately real is things like class and class struggle and ideals like equality, uh, and individual humans uh, burn themselves out, bleed for, or die for the achievement of this ideal, which is itself a kind of end of history. But in looking at his wife, she, you know, through this, this, this meditation on her heartbeat, on her pulse, she kind of beco- she becomes time, she becomes place. Um, she she becomes the place where these ultimate realities in the poem um, are lodged, so that by the end of the poem, he is paying attention to the blood in his own skull. I hear time pass through my temples. I am still alive. Um, This recognition of her partaking and manifesting of these ultimate realities of time and place and presence um, lead him to kind of recognize his own participation in those things. Uh, that he is not... That they, they are not things that have somehow ephemerally surpassed his ability to catch hold of them with words, but they are things that that are inside of him. Um, and one who lives by the, the ideology that he lays out in stanza three... Blood is the thing that is shed in order for the ideal to be achieved, whether your blood or the blood of, the, of, of those who oppose. Um, and by the end of it, he says, no, all of that pursuit of this ideal that is something other than the ultimate realities manifest in single people, um, that, that itself is the lie. That's the heresy. Um, and the truth is, is here on this bed where she becomes in herself um, a microcosm of what is real
1: as usual with these single text episodes especially with this poem i think we've barely scratched the surface what jumps out at you that we haven't covered yet david and then just pass it over to nathan when you're done
0: Just one little line that stuck with me because I felt like it was an illusion. Again, this is something that I would have to check. But uh, that description of churches, uh, churches, dome growths, their facades, petrified gardens of symbols, shipwrecked in the spiteful uh, proliferation. There's a word I can't say, Nathan, of dwarf houses, Um, probably not the Georgia Chick-fil-A's. Um, a spiteful proliferation of dwarf houses, humiliated palaces, fountains without water affronted frontispieces Um, but that line fountains without water uh, I read that and I thought that makes me think of something Uh, Jeremiah 2.13 my people have sinned in two ways says God, they have forsaken me the spring of living water and they have built for themselves cisterns that don't hold water and I wondered whether, whether this was an allusion to that text, because, uh, it seems to me one of the things that's in this poem, the poem's not about it, but one of the things that shows up in this poem are the ways in which the church had not been in this culture, what the church needed to be. And as a result, uh, itself gets caught up in this destructive move of, of history um, it becomes a fountain without water. And that was, that was sobering.
2: I think that was a silent pass of the baton. Um, I don't have a particular passage in mind. Uh, I just want to connect a couple of the conversations that we've been having. Uh, you know, this is a poem, you know, as Michael said, that's, uh, probably being composed in the, uh, early 1970s when Octavio Paz is, you know, uh, entering into old age and what impresses me about it is that the focus on the body at the end, you know, stands in such contrast to, you know, the very abstract, very, uh, callous, uh, you know, the indifferent wind that rips posters off of walls, uh, of the third stanza. And what occurs to me, uh, you know, perhaps because I'm getting to the age where I get more sore when I exert myself, uh, is that that attention to the body, you know, certainly could be the result of a philosophical shift. Uh, and certainly it was. I mean, you know, I don't want to discount, you know, the, the um, influence of Solzhenitsyn uh, on this poem or, you know, possibly on this poem. But it's also that, you know, when your body is aching, uh, that sheds a new kind of light on the notion that, you know, you're part of something that is uh, world historical in its importance, Uh, when your body itself uh, doesn't do what you want it to do anymore, uh, it strikes me that, you know, the revolutionary ideologies, at the very least, uh, have to take a different place in somebody's thought. So, uh, you know, not a particular passage, just a rumination of uh, someone who's approaching uh, you know, old age myself. What do you got, Michael?
1: Oh, I didn't prepare anything because I already asked about all the things that interested me. Um, but I do love this poem, and I hope I hope people will track it down and read it and kind of let it have its way with them. Uh, it's the only Octavio Paz I've ever read. I found it when I was teaching a class on contemporary non-Western fiction. Uh and uh, it has stuck with me ever since. and, and especially that part about uh, the truth is that which history scorns the everyday, everyone's anonymous heartbeat. That, that seems like a really important um, a really important true thing to say to me that, that the realest thing of all is the thing that can't be codified into a narrative, which is maybe what makes this poem so difficult to interpret.
0: Is this non-Western
1: literature? Yeah, I mean the the I I've, when I taught it anyway, I treated Latin American literature as non-Western. That's interesting. I mean, I I, I think that's debatable. Uh, I'm I'm sure there's I know there are good arguments for not teaching it there, but the way our classes were structured at the time, there was nowhere else to teach non-Latin uh, American literature.
0: That makes sense, and you gotta it's gotta be in there somewhere. Right when I the, yeah,
1: I mean there's some really great stuff yeah well uh, if you have anything to say about Octavio Paz or San El Defonso Nocturne or our terrible pronunciation of Spanish or anything else you can send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com our website is christianhumanist.org Grubbs, what are we talking about next week
0: next week we're talking about the letter of Athanasius yes that Athanasius to Marcellinus on the interpretation of the Psalms just a really interesting patristic meditation on what the Psalms are and what they can be in relationship to uh, the individual believer
1: great The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Filippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. Till next week, for David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.